The following podcast is not relating to my teachings and work at Del Cedar Medical Center and is for entertainment purposes only. Welcome, everybody. This is yet another episode of Life of Flow. And today we have a very exciting topic. We're going to talk business. We're going to talk business of startup medtech. And uh, it's a pleasure to invite Dan Rose, who was the acting CEO of the company Limflow up to, I want to say, mid or end of December, I'm sorry, November 2023, when the company was acquired by Inari Medical. So we're going to dive a little bit into what that whole experience as CEO was, leading up to the uh, more dramatic moments of, uh, you know, an acquisition and an exit. So stay tuned. I think it's going to be very fun. This was a good one. Yeah. It was a goodie. Yeah, it was a goodie. So anyway, thank you very much. And we'll see you soon. Two vascular surgeons walk into a bar and come out with a podcast. We are talking everything vascular and not. Welcome to the Life of Flow podcast. Dan Rose, uh, welcome to the Life of Flow podcast. We are we are currently in Austin, Texas. Uh, Lucas and I meet up here every so often, and we try to invite some of our friends over to have some candid discussions on things that essentially we selfishly think mm-hmm. are of interest with the intention and the hope that some of the people <laughs> out there may also find those interesting. And um, for those of you who don't know, Dan, um, Dan is right now jobless. He doesn't have a job. I oh, think poor, so. Poor Dan. <laughs> <laughs> he was he was uh, he was left without a job for really good reasons, though. Yeah. Really good reasons. Uh, Dan Rose was the CEO um, of Limflow for many years and took that company to um, a very successful path uh, that led to an acquisition by Inari Medical here not too long ago. Uh, not only that, but was able to take this uh, pretty disruptive technology to a path of FDA approval um, and a very noteworthy publication in probably one of the most recognized journals in medicine, which is the New England Journal of Medicine. So for that and many other things, Dan, we want to have a discussion with you and we welcome you to the show. Thanks for carving some time uh, from your schedule. Thank you for having me. I'm a fan of the show. Um, I've watched quite a number of the episodes and, uh, you know, it's an honor to get a chance to be here and also, uh, you know, I've always loved talking about Limflow. So I uh, look forward to the conversation. I appreciate that. So I'll, I'll just say, Lucas, where do you think he is at right now? What part of the world? In Switzerland or something. How do you Are know you like, this? Huh? Because he, li- he told me he lives there. Oh, you knew this. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, for those of and you. I'm very envious. Well, I, I'm yeah. seeing in the background all this climbing gear and stuff. And so for those of you that don't know you personally, Dan, um, why in the world are you in Switzerland? How many years have you been there and what led you to? to live remote from America? Great question. Uh, I asked myself how this all came about sometimes. Uh, I left uh, the U.S. in 1999, in fact, uh, and spent, uh, after doing my MBA, spent three years in London doing some venture capital work, working in medical devices, uh, um, and uh, co-founded a device company in the diabetes space. Didn't work out well. uh, And my uh, girlfriend at the time, who is now my wife, and I were living together and we, uh, she was originally from Switzerland. So we decided to decamp from London to uh, Switzerland. And I went to work directly for Medtronic. 
uh, at the European headquarters. And uh, so I've been here in Switzerland since uh, 2002. And uh, I spent three years in Sweden, kind of in the middle there for Medtronic. But um, yeah, this is my home. I've raised uh, three amazing kids here and still married to my fantastic wife, Marta. And uh, yeah, built a life here, but it was a, it was accidental, right? It was kind of one, one thing after another. And uh, so uh, as we built uh, Limflow, it kind of did it from here. And we developed a quite, uh, uh, I would say, virtual organization, which allowed us to, to hire great talent wherever we, wherever we found it. So what's the mother language? of your kids in our house we tend to speak english the kids all uh go to school in french marta speaks five languages uh and uh my son and daughter uh the older two uh both speak german fluently as well so it's it's kind of a mishmash at home but uh so we're a lot of franglais as we say there's a lot of french and english to mixed up but uh yeah we're still uh uh an american dominated house i would say so how did the how did the Limflow journey start for you? When when did you get introduced to the concept and you said, oh my God, this is amazing? So uh, Limflow was, um, uh, actually, I came across Limflow about three years before I became CEO. And uh, Limflow was, uh, ultimately came out of an idea uh, that uh, Dr. Martin Rothman uh, had uh, who uh, for a time served as the chief medical officer for Medtronic Vascular. He's an inter interventional cardiologist by training. Came up with this idea, didn't really have time or uh, you know the bandwidth to commercialize it or develop it. So he turned it over to an incubator that at this time was at that time was here in Switzerland called MD Start, which uh, was put together by Medtronic and Covidian and Soren and uh, Sophie Nova Ventures and Versant Ventures to basically do exactly that, to take ideas that doctors have uh, and to sift them and then ultimately decide which ones are worthy of incubation. You know, it's a, it's a, it's not a big issue, but it is a challenge for the big strategics when physicians bring them an idea and say, you really should do this. And they don't really have the internal structure or capacity to, to take a, you know, a raw idea, as it were, and take it through that delicate first period uh, of development. And so that's why MD Start was founded. Uh, they're actually in the th Fund 3 now. Some amazing companies have come out of it. But uh, Limflow was just starting to be incubated. I guess it was 20, 2012, late 2012. And uh, the partner who was incubating it, his name's Tim Linehan, kind of, uh, I met him here locally and he kind of uh, wanted me to take a look at being the CEO, uh, waved a, a few catheters in front of me and talked a little bit about the business plan. And I thought, amazing, amazing space, amazing opportunity, a bit too early for my sweet spot in terms of my uh, professional development, which has been later stage. So I said, you know, uh, let's talk next time. I ended up taking another job in the structural heart field and doing about a bunch of commercial work for the next three years. And I was looking for my first CEO job and Tim popped up and said, hey, wait a minute, we're, uh, we've made a ton of progress. Uh, we've half raised our series B of 15 million. We need a CEO, there's zero employees. Uh, are you still interested or convinced, passionate, uh, ready to take it on? 
and uh, we talked a bit. And uh, so that's where it started. It was uh, like many things in med tech, you know, you develop relationships, you have a lot of conversations over the years, and then people tend to come come apart and then back together projects you know start stop and start and uh and this was one that came back to me at just the right time and uh i came home uh to marta and said this is the one right i really felt like it was um uh that i was very lucky to find it at the right time and it fit exactly what i wanted to do so um uh yeah uh it's uh it's been a so that's about 10 years now i guess that i've known lymphlo and i spent seven years running lymphlo so as you were looking at this opportunity first you turn it down three years later you kind of gravitate back to it what were you looking for and you know you initially turned it down probably for some personal situations right this is not the right time this is not what i was looking for what changed either or both within you and within the company that a few years later seemed like a good match because i'm very interested on the future you know personally as thinking you know should i right now i find myself being the ceo of my own company hope vascular podiatry and i've had to learn some pretty tough lessons uh so so there is really but it but i think in my mind there's just no right time it's kind of like having a baby or getting married right there's these big things in life that you can just never utterly be prepared so in your mind, what was readiness and preparedness, both on their side and your side, that, that made you feel comfortable? That's a great question. It's never just one thing, right? It has to be a kind of a confluence of events and situations that come together that make sense. I mean, first of all, you know, if you decide, and I had decided at that point, okay, I think I do want to be the CEO of a startup. I've been in three startups at that point. Uh, I served as general manager for one. I had about 50 people working for me at that point. So I, you know, again, a European organization, not the whole organization, but I still had had a fair amount of exposure to leadership. Uh, I'd been in structural heart, coronary, peripheral, um, you know, a number of different businesses. So I felt like I had, you know, kind of a reasonable scope and understanding of what the business was about. But the fact is, when you want to be the CEO of a medtech startup, almost everything you get offered is terrible, right? Uh, because the only reason they're coming to you, an unproven CEO, is because nobody else would take it and they're out of money, all right? And so it's it you see a lot of stuff that, um, you know, basically the pitch is, well, we know it's tough. We know uh, it's early stage, a lot of promise, but we need you to go out and raise money. And uh, the challenge there is that as a first-time CEO, you don't really know what you're doing. Anybody who says they know how to be the CEO before they've done it is is is, is Ill, either ill-informed or lying. Uh, and so when you start, you've got a lot of stuff to do. And coming in and having to raise money right out of the gate is a is a huge challenge. It's a major function for a medtech startup uh, startup CEO, but it's really really difficult when you don't really know how to do the job. And the beautiful thing about this, and one thing that was really compelling for me, and it doesn't have to do with really the promise of Limflow and uh, how fantastic the you know therapeutic potential was, was simply that they had ten out of the fifteen million of the um, the Series B already raised, and they could pay my salary for sure for two years, 
So I had some breathing space to figure out how to do the job. And that was that was critical for me. Um, the other piece of it beyond that, that sense of saying, hey, you know, is this funded? Uh, because I am the sole earner in my household, so I do have to pay the bills. Uh, the, the other piece of it was that it was somewhat a blank slate. No employees, everything was virtual. Uh, I could pick and choose my talent. I could build things the way I wanted to build them. You're not coming in, replacing a grumpy founder, you know, a bunch of people who, you know, are really not up to the job of building, uh, you know, a global med tech company like we needed to do. So that was the other piece was I had money, a promising technology that I believed in, and I had a relative blank slate. At that point, did you have human data or was it just, just animal data? We had about... Uh, I think 20 or 25 patients uh, had been done at that point. Uh, that was back in the good old days of, uh, you know, being able to get CE Mark with uh, a relatively limited data set. So we weren't far from CE Mark. Uh, you know, the first in man uh, of, you know, I think 13 patients had, had been done by Stephen Coombe in Singapore. Uh, and that had allowed them to iterate the devices over time, right? That's why we came up with, in the valvulatome, uh, that's how we came up with the conical stent. You know, so those those products had been developed and and were you know ready for CE marking. So it was a nice it was a nice sweet spot where there was some evidence that it it worked. I was convinced of that. I saw my first case and I it took four and a half or five hours, but I'd been in hundreds of different. You know, I started out in cabbage surgery for Medtronic. I've been in hundreds of different interventional procedures and surgical procedures. And I just looked and said, I think we can figure this out, right? It looks clumsy. It looks complicated, difficult, uh, but I don't see any barrier here to ultimately with time and the right people and the right partners, uh, clinicians working with us to make this a working procedure. And I've seen enough pictures to know that something is going on with these feet once we start, you know, channeling blood through the venous system. So again, not enough for most people, but more than enough for someone with my background uh, and maybe someone who's credulous and hopeful and, you know, <laughs> and wants to believe that it's going to work as well. Uh, because, uh, you know, lots of smart people looked at it. Tons of smart people looked at it over the years and told me that will never work. no. I've been told no by hundreds, at least a hundred venture capital firms. So, um, you know, there are plenty of people that tell you no, but you have to have the belief sometimes, you know, without a whole lot of basis that it is going to work. And I had that at that time. I find that probably one of the most amazing parts of your story, which is not necessarily having a CEO role first and taking on this sort of technology, right? I mean, it's, it's huge because it's also a rather obscure clinical indication to begin with that there are going to be many dubious and by the way, still today are, uh, that, that are incredules, right? That you, you still, they look at you like you're just, you know, making smokes and mirrors. So um, do you think 
that at the time your gauge of of the difficulty level to to get this to where you got it was going to be such or, or or do you think that you potentially were a little bit cocky and said no i think this is going to be an easy road and we're going to get this done and and half of the time it it took you yeah i mean there are a few aspects of that i mean one uh I think I think if you were honest with yourself about what it's going to take and how long it's going to take and how much money it's going to take, you'd never get out of bed in the morning, right? So you have to you have to deceive you know, yourself that like yes, we can do this. People are going to be excited if we do this next thing. Maybe someone will buy us if we do this next thing. You know, you have to you have to have. Um, be telling yourself the story that the next kind of hill climbing up the mountain, when you turn the corner, you're going to be near the top. When in reality, we all know you turn the corner and there's just another part of the hill, right? And uh, and so there is that uh, irrationality that comes in it. I did, I had been through uh, a similar kind of journey looking at, because I, I, I often... I drew a lot of parallels from past experiences. And one was, you know, in my career, I started off in cardiac surgery, working with a lot of cardiac surgeons. Uh, I lived through the early stages of TAVR, where I was, you know, one watching it and watching Core Valve and Edwards uh, go through that journey, hearing cardiac surgeons say, this was crazy. You can't do this. It's never going to work. It's dangerous. Uh, and and then watching it become the standard of care, right? And watching them start off with extreme risk patients. I worked for a structural heart company in Taver, so I participated in, in helping enroll the clinical trial where patients were on death's door. You know, no surgeon was ever going to operate on them, and they, you know, get their aortic valve replaced, uh, you know, uh, transfemorally, and they try to jailbreak the ICU and run home right? Because they feel fantastic. And so I had been through this journey of saying, hey, wait a minute, if we prove something in the worst of the worst patients, then maybe it has wider applications. And and maybe maybe it can be uh, a, a kind of um, uh, a place to start and expand from. And I think those there are various examples of that in the history of med tech and, uh, and medicine. And so I looked at it and said, look, we are clearly saving some limbs that should come off. And if we're doing that and we can consistently do that, then physicians will figure out how to deploy it and we'll get better at the catheters, we'll get better at the procedure, we'll get better at um, the steps of the procedure, the order of the procedure. Remember, we didn't. We started with the ankle and not doing pedal access. We started with ultrasound and now going to non-ultrasound system. And we're just getting started of figuring out where this can go. I firmly believe that. And so I've had that model in my head from very early on, I have to say. And uh, and so, again, I had a little, a little bit of a unique, potentially idealistic uh, vision of what could happen. What, why do you think surgeons across the board have that fault of just like seeing something obvious that's going to work? or that has the potential to revolutionize and just say, oh, no, that'll never work. Because I feel like it's one of our fault. And I don't know if it's just surgeons, but it may be other physicians. But I see it a lot. And it's like, oh, that doesn't work. 
until and then you have to see it like five times. So it's like, oh, maybe there's something to that. I mean, I have a. I don't know if I. Uh, I'll say this publicly, but it's just a theory of mine, right? And and that is that in general, surgeons can you give them a knife, a needle, and thread, and they can do their job, right? They they feel enabled to make something happen with very basic tools, and they do an apprenticeship to learn how to do amazing things with those very simple tools, right? If you take the discipline of some of the other, you know, groups that we're familiar with, interventional cardiologists, interventional radiologists, they are technology enabled from day one, right? They can't do their day-to-day -day work without imaging, catheters, you know, I mean, think about all the tools you need just to, you know, place a coronary stent, right? You need a lot of technology. And I think that discipline, which is not very old, to be to be honest, uh, has in its mindset a kind of like, give me this, what are we going to do with it? What boundary can we, you know, where can we take this? How can we develop this? Working very closely with industry to develop new tools that can be used in the lab. Uh, I mean, I think it's, I think some medical disciplines have that innately in their training and others have a different training. And that's where surgeons sometimes bump up, bump up against the, hey, I can do this open, right? And I feel very confident about doing open. And open can be fantastic and oftentimes is the, is the best thing. But it's a little bit of a mentality difference of having to depend on technology, which is not bad, but it's just a fact. And at its essence, not having to depend on technology. Does that make sense to you guys as as, as surgeons? I, I have my additional thoughts on this in the sense that I think that the whole training paradigm that we go through um, is, is not necessarily incentivizing free thinking. It's very, you need to do things my way and I'm going to, teach my trainees to do things my way. And I, and this comes from personal experience, right? I mean, I, I had a very particular pathway because I became a vascular surgeon in Costa Rica. Then I went and trained with some of the best people in the world in Leipzig for three years. And when I decide to come back to the U.S., I have to go back to internship. I went from being the director of peripheral endovascular to being the intern for trauma on call. And so I had a perspective of, you know, I clearly can probably do this better than you. Um, but I had these older senior surgeons telling me how I should do it and I should do it their way. And so it was, it was very humbling, but it was, you know, it was painful initially, then humbling. And then eventually I said, you know what? One thing I'll try to teach trainees from now on is always, Training is about learning the good and the bad mm -hmm. and finding what makes you, you know, what, what middle comfort zone is what you need, um, for you to, you know, to, to, to find what works for you. And so, um, what then happens, I think, is when you're brought into this dogmatic pathway where you're blindly taught to not be a creative thinker, to not necessarily be unbiased, then you have a heck of a trouble, a heck of a time trying to accept 
that there are these other ways in which you can do things. And, and I think what kicks in first is insecurity. Mm-hmm. And with insecurity, you usually shut down because you don't, you don't want to, you don't want to expose your weaknesses. And so a lot of guys will just block the remote idea and then they, <laughs> they shield themselves behind it's scientific and reasonable and responsible skepticism. Mm-hmm. And, and that's okay. And that's what I should do. Yeah. And my thought is, I think you're just being obstructionist to your own intellect because you feel a little bit insecure by the lack of knowledge in this arena. And to Dan's point, we would have never gotten to Taver. We would have never done EVARs and, and TVARs, right? I mean, there were, yeah. we had in the show then, um, um, Dr. Frank Vieth, and he gave us this whole perspective about the hatred and the animosity that he found in his career while trying to bring some of the new endovascular tools into, into New York City, right? And I mean, he is essentially almost like fired from his job and certainly was never considered to be part of the role in, in, in leading the Society of Vascular Surgery. But we are a hard little clan. And I think that there are, however, a lot of new blood. I think there's a lot of new blood and a lot of people that are coming in with new mentalities. And I feel a lot of our listeners are probably the, the more unbiased and more open, um, uh, you, you know, group of people that will probably find. Well, certainly the younger generation of vascular surgeons is, is, has a really powerful set of tools, right? They have the surgical tool set, but they also have quite good, uh, you know, uh, endovascular tools. And that's, that's fantastic. What you can offer to the patient. And also, as you, as you say, I do, do think it's a mentality change where you say, Hey, wait a minute, maybe new tools aren't bad. Right. And maybe new techniques aren't bad and, and beginning to, to adopt kind of the middle ground as it were, uh, that, uh, that's needed to ultimately push things forward. So when, when you're in this journey, you, you have your, your first in trial, you have promise one. Was the strategy always to get to the point where you reached where a major company bought you or where the strategy was, you know, maybe I'll have some prelim data and somebody will buy us then, or is that just, did that just evolve uh, over time? What was the mentality when, when you grab one of these companies? Like, when do I think about exit? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, you know, and it evolves over time. I think, you know, one thing that's not seen uh, from outside, maybe, um, uh, you know, the CEO role or certainly outside of being in a med tech startup is, you know, there's a very particular dynamic going on, right? We have to uh, go out and get money a lot of money, tens of millions. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, I, I raised uh, over $80 million at Limflow while I was there uh, from venture capitalists and to fund the company. The one thing startups do really, really well, all of them do really, really well is spend money. Uh, there are a lot of other things they might not do well, but they spend money like perfectly. And uh and uh, and so you're constantly in need of money. The only reason venture capitalists are giving you money or providing you with money is so that you can give them a lot more money back later, right? That's it. Uh, yes, there's technology involved. Yes, there's healthcare involved, but they have taken money from other people, from their limited partners, 
they've taken that money and said, we're going to use that money to get you more money. So that's the way venture capital works. So you're thinking about the exit, maybe not as a like immediate thing, but you're always thinking about the exit. And the exit can be an IPO, right? We've seen some very successful, and Nari is a great example of uh, you know, a great technology going to market and building enough revenue to become you know, a huge success in the public markets. And that allows their investors to, to reap huge benefits um, or a trade sale, you know, when Boston snaps you up or Medtronic snaps you up or Edwards or whoever it may be. But, you know, you're thinking about that all the time because your investors are asking you about that all the time, right? I mean, uh, sometimes they can be more or less pushy, but everybody wants to know what, what's the end of the road. And sometimes you think, hey, wait a minute, maybe it's CE Mark, right? And we show a little revenue. Maybe it's IDE approval to start your pivotal trial, which, you know, was pretty irrational hope, but it has happened, right? That you've been snapped up at that point. Maybe it's just showing an interim analysis of the data. I mean, you build up in your mind all these ideas that it's it's going to be then, or it could possibly be then. And uh, and so the farther you go, again, the more data you generate, the more success you have, the more approvals you have, the more likely it is. And that's about all you can say, because acquisitions happen at all phases. They come in all flavors. Uh, they depend a lot on the macroeconomic situation, which in this past year in medtech has been terrible. So, I mean, the fact that we were able to transact a company in that setting is is amazing. I mean, I keep getting told uh, how amazing it is. It it felt it, it felt very very hard. But we also had the opportunity. You know, we had we could have funded the company. Uh, you know, uh, we had uh, you know, I'd raised a Series E, and 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 you know, for, I had two. Uh, you know, I had I had multiple uh, you know pathways to fund the company. For the next few years, uh, and that's that's the ideal situation to be in. But so we weren't forced into acquisition. It was the right thing to do at the right time with the right the right partner. Would you compare leading a company to buying a boat? They say that the happiest day of a boat owner is the day they buy a boat. The second happiest day of a boat owner is the day they sell the boat. Would you consider <laughs> that that's an appropriate comparison? From from whose perspective? From your perspective as a as a CEO. Well, you know, I, I can I've only done it once and I can tell you that you have very mixed emotions uh at um at transacting. Uh very very mixed emotions. I'm not sure I'm even certainly clear about it in my head. Clearly it's a it's a fantastic win. Uh, investors, uh, you know, were very happy. I think Inari is very happy uh, um, and uh, and progressing very well with the business. Integration's going great, um, you know. And uh, and I think, but I think for the team that works there, it's it's mixed, right? Uh, you accomplish something, but now there's a new phase, and you're happy to continue on the journey, but it's in a different context. Uh, for myself, who uh, you know is in the process of, as as almost every CEO does, stepping away from from the leadership role, uh, you know you you're very happy it went well, but um, but uh, you you miss you miss your baby, so uh, that's for sure. I would I would think that 
You know, I was purposely asking that because I don't necessarily think that's true. I think it's probably you're very happy the day you land the job that you think is a good fit. And then if you do a really, really good job, you're inevitably losing your baby, which you've put years of sweat and emotion. Uh, I mean, it's your life uh, for what was this? A, a ten years. Ten years. Mm-hmm. And then, years. and then you make a lot of people happy, but in you're losing a piece of yourself. You know, you're you're letting go of a team, and your routine has to change, and and uh, you know you're left without without a, a mission overnight. Absolutely, it's it's hard, uh, and uh, so I mean, I'm not complaining by any means. I mean, uh, you know, it, it's a big win. Right. And it opens a lot of doors for me as well for things I might want to do next and, you know, um, financial security and all kinds of, uh, of great stuff. But um, uh, nonetheless, like you poured your heart and soul into this. I mean, you guys do the same with your work all the time, uh, you know, and your patience and you take text messages 24 hours a day trying to save limbs and lives. I mean, I saw that. I've seen it again and again we're all engaged in our careers. This is a, an all encompassing for everybody at a startup. It's an all encompassing calling. Uh, and, uh, when you stop suddenly you're like, <laughs> you know, where's my frame of reference, you know, like, uh, uh, I've had it for a long time and now, you know, yeah, you take a vacation and it's good. But, uh, uh, I think we're instinctually, uh, uh, driven for for action and not for repose. I was listening. I was listening to a podcast with uh, Andrew Huberman and Rick Rubin, which is super. It's a great podcast, uh, and they were talking like the key to happiness is progression because you achieve these wins. But the same way, a win, you know, the same way you were happy at some point by a minor win and it just went away. Uh, that can happen with great success too. And I kind of experienced that. You know, when I finished fellowship, I was like so excited, so happy. And then I found myself, you know, sometimes on a Friday night in my desk after a long day of work, you know, just like doing typing notes and, you know, distracting myself and kind of feeling unhappy. Uh, and I think it's kind of what something that they said is like, okay, human beings are meant to progress. You know, think you're not supposed to stay stagnant. So, what do you have an idea in your mind of, you know, because it's a really big win that you just had, you know, what, what does progression mean to you now? Do, do you have an idea? I'm not sure. Uh, you know, I mean, it's already, you know, lot, lots of opportunities, right? Uh, I think uh, to stay involved with MedTech. Um, I love building teams and leading teams and uh, I've worked with some amazing people and I've met many other amazing people as well. So uh, you know, will I be doing something for sure? What capacity? Um, I, I, I'm not sure yet, but, um, uh, you know, there's so much cool stuff going on in med tech. Uh, there's so much great stuff going on, even in, uh, you know, peripheral, I think we're at the beginning of a, a, you know, a new era in the space. And, uh, and so, yeah, we'll see. Um, but, uh, you know, I think there is a recovery period of before you just jump jump right back in um, and uh, and start it all over again. I don't want to do things reflexively, and uh, and I think uh, I've earned the right to be choosy. So um, uh, and and so uh, 
that that will be uh my mindset but um but as you as you point out right it's the achievement it's not the achievement of things that that is is the pleasure of life i think it's the it's the anticipation of achieving things right it's the working towards them and then it's like getting FDA approval you've worked you've bled you've you've gone through every hoop every effort every late night call early morning call every everything you could do to get to that point from first conceptualizing what an early feasibility study would look like and the testing involved to negotiating what the endpoints would be for that study to negotiating the IDE trial and all the testing tens of I mean just everything and you get it and you're excited for a day and then you're like all right next thing uh the 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 savoring I think is in the is in the 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 doing uh and and I find it hard to to savor for a long time I I think the the older I get the more I, I just like to to work towards a goal you know now then I don't think anybody can deny that this was a very, very successful win. But when you look back and during the holidays and time that you've taken off, can you look back and say, there are things that I would have done differently and that if I find myself in this role again, I'm going to completely re-engineer? And if so, would you mind pointing them or some or one out first of all i i have a whole list of things that i think i i i i made mistakes on at lymphoma right uh they didn't derail the project but i i certainly would would do them differently um privately i mean the before covid uh so i counted uh you know we kicked off the promise two trial in december of 2019 and I counted I had traveled 50 weeks in 2019. So I had gone somewhere, not the whole week, but I had gone somewhere 50 weeks that year. That's that's stupid. You know, that doesn't make any sense in terms of a, a of a of a way to live your life, right? And uh and so thankfully I think uh you know one of the few few bright spots of the post-COVID environment is uh, is uh, the the ability to work from anywhere and not have to you know fly a whole day for a thirty-minute meeting, right? But that's a pretty good example of um, you know I just can't go back to that. Uh, you know, I, I mean, obviously it affected my family, but I still you know I think three great kids and and have you know love being around them and they they i think uh occasionally appreciate being around me but uh but i wouldn't go back to that and uh and i i, I just wouldn't I, I would try i don't know if i'm capable of it but try not to take it so seriously because the amount of nights you spent like thinking about stuff that you can't really have any control over uh i i gotta talk to huberman about how to how to how to get over that because uh that would that would be something I would very much like to uh, to to lose as an impulse. So I'll, I'll I'll share with you one of the things that I um deal with the most uh, when I'm stressed and when I am overthinking things 
is unfortunately I cannot sleep. And it leads into these very um, inappropriate patterns of sleep um, where maybe I'll fall asleep, but then I wake up and it's, 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 a, it's a vicious circle because then I'm not resting. I don't have my REM time that's appropriate. And I realize that my ability and capacity to then work the next day and be crisp and clear is hindered by the inability to sleep. Yeah. And so that makes everything worse because I know already I dread the nighttime stressing over, am I going to have the capacity to sleep or not? And then, you know, thankfully this hasn't been an issue, but I see where it could easily be. I need to drink a little more, right? I'm going to, I'm going to have to, the nightcap and I'm going to have mm. to do a little couple. And in our environment, this is a very, very easy thing, right? Yeah. Cause there's liquor all over the place. You go to every dinner, there's wine, there's, and, and I feel that maybe a lot of us in this business then eventually turn very quickly to, you know, using these sort of things. And, um, yeah. and I, I, I don't know if that's, there's something you can share, like what, what, what in your, world when you're stressed and you're is sleep for you an issue or or do you sleep well i have to say I, i've got you know i've got an apple watch and uh, normally i'm wearing it and uh and i i love looking at my sleep tracker uh i can tell you 2023 was a year of terrible sleep uh you know i mean really really miserable waking up thinking you know I, I mean, as soon as, uh, you know, if I can fall back asleep in 10 seconds, I'm good. If it gets anywhere beyond that, the whole brain is spooling up. Right. And uh, we were in the middle of, you know, trying to get FDA approval, trying to raise money, exploring, selling the company, transitioning to commercial and putting a commercial team in place. Uh, potentially moving my family to the U.S. I mean, a whole, like, if you wanted to think about stuff, there was an infinite amount of stuff to stress about. And, uh, and yeah, it was miserable. Uh, the only thing that keeps me straight is exercise, uh, you know, to be honest. And I try, you know, I don't always make it, but five to six days a week, because because that that's the only thing that kind of resets my brain. And, uh, and it's hard if you haven't slept the night before, right? But... Um, Without that, uh, yeah, I don't know where I'd be. But uh, but now I sleep great. <laughs> I look and I'm like, oh my god! It's like somebody hit me in the head at uh, you know 10:30 p.m. and I woke up at six. I mean, it's beautiful. So um, uh, yeah, uh, I, sometimes you you say, well, do, was it really the job? And you're like, yeah, it was the job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, there, there are a lot of things, and I'll make a plug for 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 that podcast. They do deep dives into sleep because I feel exactly the same way. I can be like really stressed out, in a bad mood, and if I have a good night's sleep, the next day I'm like good. So there's a bunch of like really practical podcasts about it. So if if and I've used them and, and they work. So. All right, here's my plug for hopefully a future, <laughs> you know, a future commercial partner of the of the podcast but i got the uh eight sleep yeah. system this is a uh yeah, essentially it's a cover for your mattress yeah. so it transforms your mattress into a temperature control mattress mm -hmm. uh it's water-based and then there's this very quiet system that connects yeah. and allows you for dual temperature so your wife or your partner yeah. can have one mix of temperature sets for the night yours is a different one 
And then it also variates and you can add the teach, right? So it it understands that when you're cold, you come out of REM and when you're warm, you're going into it. So then during the the days, it it smartly adjusts. And then obviously it adjusts with the changes of of climate, right? Mm -hmm. And so right now, because it's a little cold in Houston, then it's a little bit warmer, mm. but I, but also there's an app that then tracks everything, your, mm-hmm. your respiration and your REM and all this. So it, it's a great feedback. And if you want to even empower the app and tell them how much coffee you had, or if, is it a stress day? Did you do sports or not to dance point? And then it starts giving you all this advice. So, I mean, I, I don't know for high stress individuals. And I think in our podcast, probably a lot of our listeners are. Go consider looking into, you know, getting one of these smart mattress covers. You know, one other thing, uh, I can't believe we're discussing this, but uh, I, in, in wintertime, I'm always excited this day happens. My wife brings out uh, the weighted blankets, right? And so these are like, you know, heavy comforters, right? And there's something about like that weight on top of you. And it doesn't work very well when it's hot outside, right? You have to kind of put them away in summer. So maybe not a solution for Houston and Austin, but um, there's something special about that weight on top of you that uh, takes you back to childhood, you know? And uh, so uh, I, uh, for me, for me, that, that, that really does trigger some great sleep, but uh, you know, and no electronics, you know, obviously involved with that. It's just a, you know, heavy so well i'm really curious about your dance partner in this anari because when i heard about it it didn't make sense in my mind i was like because they're mostly known for venus pathologies and my in my use right so what on their perspective why going after lymph flow was a good idea do you think if, and, you, if you can comment if you can't that's and fine. maybe expand towards what the relationship was because i think this is public information that they had a seat at the board for a while silently. That's that's out there. I've seen it in a couple of communications. So how did that relationship develop? And 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 to Lucas's point, how does it make sense? <laughs> so uh I mean I'll I'll tell you a little bit of what I know. I don't I'm not inside the head of of everybody, right? And I, I wouldn't want to speak to other people's uh motivations necessarily, but um, you know, it goes back a little bit to what we were talking about before. You were asking about like when is the right time to sell. Well, you know, you're just like and Miguel, I've said this to you before before, like you're always raising money, like never stop raising money. You're always having conversations. Even if you're you just closed around, you're still in touch with the people who could fund the next round, right? And the same is true with your discussions with strategics, where I think if you're doing it right you're consistently engaging with the people who could be potential acquirers, right? And uh, and uh, over years, right? Really from the very beginning, I, I was looking at some, some notes this morning of board minutes from the year I started and I had like all the strategic that I talked to within four months of starting the job, right? So those conversations are always ongoing. Uh, I had, uh, you know, I actually um, uh, had worked with Drew Hikes, who's the CEO of Limflow, um, back at Medtronic back in 2002, 2003. We didn't work in the same group, but we were young guys. Uh, um, uh, he was working in coronary vascular, I believe, and I was working in cardiac surgery, but we were kind of in the same cube zone. Uh, and so we've known each other a long time. We used to catch up every once in a while. 
And uh, and so that evolved at, at some point into a conversation with, uh, you know, some of the other uh, Inari senior management. And so just like just like we were doing with everybody else, we were we were, uh, you know, having chats with them, updates with them. And um, I think at the end of the day, what 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 resonated from Limflow's perspective with Inari is their culture and their history is very similar to what we have. They uh, took a technology and a pathway that not a lot of people believed in. Uh, it is a true market development story. Uh, they they did an amazing job of taking that technology, looking at how it's going to fit into uh, you know, the two areas they work in, really engaging in a classical market development uh, effort there from reimbursement to clinical data to uh, product development and iteration and partnering with physicians and developing PERT teams, which I think always resonated for me. You know, these multidisciplinary teams look at looking at pulmonary embolism just like, and you guys have had podcasts uh, discuss this extensively, and you know I'm a huge believer in multidisciplinary teams and uh, in CLTI. I mean, this is essential to TADV. It's essential to, I think, uh, I think the the future of how these patients should be managed. And so we had a lot of commonality in uh, in uh, in how they looked at developing a market for a new technology. Now that may seem weird to non-med tech people who are like, well, it's a different device and a different space, but the way you think about going about it, even if it's in a different it, it, it different uh, you know, medical area or, or disease state, is very important. The mindset and the uh and the way you structure your thinking is uh there are a lot of commonalities. So we saw that. And we also saw that they have a tremendous spirit, culture, and energy about them. I mean, I felt like every time we talked to them, I'm like, we could work here and you guys could work at Limflow. I mean, it was uh, the people felt very similar. And I can tell you that's not true a lot of times when you're talking to strategics, right? You don't feel that same level of energy and excitement. And I think you know, besides, I think I think it, obviously there are great reasons why it makes sense for for Inari to have Limflow, and uh, they have their own reasons and strategy and future the company and how they think about it. And I can't comment on that, uh, but um, but at its base, I think they looked at us and said, "This is a very very promising technology that can change the lives of you know tens, if not hundreds, of thousands of patients." over time. Uh, and uh, these guys have a very similar culture and we've known them for years. We trust what they've done and how they've done things. And uh, and so let's find a way. And so that's, that's kind of did it. They made an investment uh, and they were then able to track us closely as observers on the board. And, uh, you know, one thing led to another. I think what's, uh, what makes sense to me about that unity is, is, the fact that they are not uncomfortable with uncomfortable territories, right? Uh, you know, it's just putting Dan's words in another way, which is who decided to put this big fat device into the lungs and pluck clots out, right? That, that was a big leap of faith. There's a lot, a lot of people against it. And 
slowly the data yeah, has a lot of people told them it wasn't going to work it was a stupid idea i mean like uh, you know it's um they've been there like we've been there yeah yeah and so this uh this this track record of being able to do that i think it's important and i think it diversifies their portfolio right i mean you don't necessarily want to just be the clock company right i mean i i think that's rather limiting in a niche um and i understand uh for, from the little i know because i have obviously absolutely no visibility to the c suite of anari but that they're at the core they're going to keep most of the team of limflow intact um it it would be ludicrous to let it go because there is an immense amount of knowledge right yeah. i mean and and that's one thing that dan i i, I don't think that I, we've talked about it enough but you were an absolute supporter of the science of Roberto Ferraresi and you know him diving billions of feet into this and us trying to figure out diverse access sites and molecular things that could be changing and supportive of different imaging path- pathways to try to figure this out and all of that has built this knowledge base uh that i for one, think is probably a huge amount of the valuation, which, mm-hmm. which is hard, right? It, it, you know, how do you put an, a, a number on, <laughs> you yeah. know, all this uh, work that was done ahead of time? But I think that that's the plan, and I think it's the right plan. Mm-hmm. And you're just going to be put in an effervescent place where there's enough money to, you know, have enough help to be able to start training. Uh, and and, and I, I think that's really crucial. And this is, I hope that they're hearing me. Um, in the sense that I really do think that education is going to be incredibly important for the adoption, appropriate adoption, and then massification of this technique, which, again, to your point down earlier, is we started with the worst of the worst, but I foresee that in the next 10 years, we're going to figure out that putting a fistula into our procedures is probably a good thing and it's going to be like, hey, I'm going to do an angioplasty of the tibial arteries, mm-hmm. and then I'm going to drop a fistula mm-hmm. on the way out. Yeah. Uh, and, and then you kind of complement these things because I know that the fistula is going to create the slow thing that's going to keep the patient going. Like, I don't know where it's going, but I think it's going to yeah. go from no option to poor option to potentially all options yeah. <laughs> down the line as we learn more from this. I mean, I think that it's the most exciting thing in basketball. And some of my more senior partners laugh at me when I say this. But I think it's probably the most exciting thing in vascular surgery because you're creating new blood vessels with a procedure. Yeah. That's kind of insane. Uh, and I mean, we it's don't, the most exciting in my career, yeah. right? I, I didn't get the EVAR day, right? I yeah. didn't get that. I but didn't it, get- you're affecting the, the, you know, you're affecting cell function. You're, you know, EVARs don't affect that. EVARs is just, you know, physics. This is you're going to changing you know, gene expression. Yeah. That's crazy. I think it's going to be interesting yeah. to see where it goes. Then, um, I, I'm very excited of where it can go. Um, I'm sure, uh, in a free market, uh, in a capitalist America, there's going to be other people, right? Other companies that are going to try to see this and learn from this and figure out some other things. And the, 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 the thing may just explode in many ways and maybe we'll start using it for things like upper extremity ischemia, maybe there's a role for other organs in the body. Like, I, I don't know. Where do you see um, 
from your perspective, then, where 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 sky's the limit uh, in the arterialization world as we get close to the end here? I, I mean, I think I I think it's it, like you. I I can't. I don't know right where it's going to end up, but I do think over time with technology development, tons of clinical data, all the thoughtful things we have to do over time. But if you can create a fistula that stays open and provides an adequate level of pressurized, arterialized blood um, without steel, without compromising anything else, right? If there's no downside to it, right? Why wouldn't you do it all the time? Yeah. yeah. That's my fundamental thought. Now, we, we, we clearly aren't there yet, right? And we don't know exactly, you know, we don't know many things about, uh, and I listened to your uh, DBA rant one and two, right? Uh, uh, Marta had to listen to me driving the car and listening to it. And she's like, these guys, you know, should we not talk about med tech as well in our private time? But, um, but uh, uh, you know, there's a lot that we haven't figured out in terms of, you know, flow volumes, pressure, uh, where and when and how we know what we're doing with Limflow and Tad V works right, and the vast majority of time can we've established the floor of where we can be, but we have not, in the sense of, I mean, we know we can be this good. How much better can we be? Uh, there's so much opportunity to get better at it, and it will not come just from technology, right? It'll come from physicians, right? figuring out better imaging, better techniques. Uh, uh, you know, it, it will be the learnings that we need to collect, the community needs to share in order to take it forward. But uh, it's the beginning of a journey and there's so much to be done. We all know that uh, in many ways, peripheral doesn't do a good enough, the technology we have don't do a good enough job of, um, you know, a lot of times we're just pushing pushing the the problem down the road, and frankly, not very far down the road, right? And uh, and hopefully, this is a pathway in the armamentarium to create a more sustainable uh, effect, right? And you've seen some of your patients. I think both of you have seen patients who were out years, right, with warm feet. We were discussing about putting together some, some pretty far follow-ups of of now rounding in the three years mark five still years. three five well, years yeah five years yeah oh well uh dan we could probably talk for hours um unfortunately for us we only asked you to carve one hour uh fortunately for you you don't have to talk to us that long um but we appreciate uh during your uh this, this beautiful time uh where you're relaxing and getting back to your sleep um, from both of us, kudos uh, on a job well done. Uh, thank you. Also, from our patient standpoint, everything you did is is helping us help them, and for that we feel very blessed and very honored to have. have... Thank you so much for the conversation. I hope I can see both of you uh, in person, and we can actually, uh, you know, uh, like like you have uh, tried to set the tone here. We can we can sit at the bar and uh, and catch up and. Uh, and discuss exciting things for the future. So, well, that's how the podcast started, and that's how it's going to continue. So, yeah. we look forward to having a beer with you also soon, somewhere in the world. Uh, otherwise, pura vida, and we'll be talking. Okay, man. Thanks. 
Thank you much, Dan. Thank you. Take care.